Trevilian Next is a division of Trevilian, a financial services specialist search and talent advisory firm. Since inception, the Trevilian team has dedicated itself to enhancing the return on investment of a company's most important resource, its people. Hello, everyone. I am Indra Ilangaman, Head of Strategic Advisory at Trevelyan. Commercial real estate has made significant headlines, and to understand the implications for banks, we have Cushman and Wakefield sharing their insights with our two bank CEOs. The bank CEOs will ask questions to Cushman and Wakefield, the top of their mind questions on CRE. First, I would like each of our panelists today to take a minute to introduce themselves. Let's start with Michael. Hi, my name is Michael Denise. I'm head of the private capital group at Cushman and Wakefield um, Mid-Atlantic, uh, where I've been for seven years and I have uh, over 15 years have been in the commercial real estate sector. Thanks, Michael. Jack? Hi, I'm Jack Hopkins, uh, President and CEO of Core Trust Bank. We're a $1.6 billion community bank located in eastern South Dakota and in the Minnesota market, primarily in the metro Twin City area of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Thanks, Jack. Mark? Hi, I'm Mark Hessler, President and CEO of Pinnacle Bancor in Omaha, Nebraska. We're a multi-bank holding company for four community banks that operate in eight states in the Midwest, and we're about $18.7 in assets. Thanks, Mark, and welcome, everyone. So let's get started. Michael, lay out the trends and bring us up to date on what you're seeing on CRE by asset types and regions. Absolutely. So first of all, I would just like to start off by saying that I realize there's going to be uh, a lot of questions about this. Uh, and so what we're going to start off, is we're just going to go through everything and what we're seeing on the national market, uh, cover each of those uh, different asset classes first, and then bring it back for questions afterwards, since, um, you know, there's a this is a definitely a, an unprecedented time, uh, at least in my lifetime, and, and at least in this most real, uh, recent real estate cycle to be seeing a lot of these numbers. Um, and, and I know a lot of people are gonna have a lot of questions. So starting off um, let's, with office, which is on everybody's mind. Uh, office it, sector has been, uh, you know, has had a, a difficult year um, ever since interest rates started increasing uh, in the beginning of 2022. Um, it really kind of exacerbated the, the situation that was created by the work from home um, scenario that we've seen since uh, COVID. Now, overall, that was a trend that had started many years before COVID, uh, where more uh, of the work population uh, was, you know, kind of commuting to work maybe only um, uh, four days a week uh, or some jobs. You, you started to see an increase where they were exclusively work from home. But it was a very slow trend um, that was uh, kind of moving uh, mainly based off a of generation. And very rapidly, COVID completely changed that. Uh, and that really disrupted a lot of the fundamentals of office uh, throughout the nation, really regardless of, of what sector, what, you know, what asset class it is, uh, what uh, market it is, whether it's a urban or suburban market, um, and it really even, um, it, you know, regardless of what region it is. And so we're going to go over really national trends and then kind of dig back down a little bit to regional trends. 
Um, but as you can see, vacancy overall uh, for the past couple of years has been increasing. Um, this kind of comes off of a, a trend that had started a little bit at the, uh, before COVID, but really uh, just shot up um, over the past three years. Uh, and right now you're, you're uh, on the national side, we're hovering at around 20%. Uh, and it's continued to going up. And we forecast that to, to continue to go up as uh, there is still more office that's coming out uh, that was under construction uh, before we saw a lot of these interest rates rising. Um, and companies are still really reimagining themselves. Um, on a per square foot basis, um, we're still seeing a little bit of increase. Um, it's slowing significantly. Uh, uh, rental growth uh, has really kind of grinded down to a you know, 0.1, 0.2% increase on a monthly basis. Um, but overall, um, we see this going down and this number doesn't factor in what a lot of people don't look at, which is inflation. Um, and the overall, um, you know, while the asking rents have been going up uh, over the past uh, couple of years, uh, this is not inflation adjusted, and most numbers are not tracked this way. Um, we do have those numbers, and we can provide those numbers. Um, but overall, uh, in general, the, the rent is starting to drop on a real-time basis uh, when it comes to most of office. Um, and again, going down to that rental growth, we are seeing, you know, on a year-over-year -year basis, very, very mild growth. 0.7% uh, is not what people were underwriting three, four years ago. Um, you know, people were looking for one to 2% at a minimum. Um, and just nationally, uh, that really has ground down. Um, and uh, again, on real on a real term basis, uh, we're looking at negative uh, rental growth. So not a lot of good indicators here, at least when it comes to the overall um, scene. We're gonna we're gonna dig down a little bit more because there are some highlights in some markets, and there are, there are some highlights in some asset class classes. But as you can see, a lot of that is really um, driven by that work from home uh, trend uh, that has been continuing on. The unemployment rate generally, when it's this low, office is doing well. Um, it did tick up, and th these numbers are from just before August numbers uh, that ticked up to 3.8%, I believe, for US unemployment. Um, but labor force participation still has much to be seen. Uh, it hasn't quite gotten up to the numbers that we saw um, you know, in February, 2020. And that is also part of the factor. So it's not just that more people are working from home. You also see that there are fewer people in the labor force period. And so all of that is gonna kind of combine to really put a, a damper on um, space occupancy um, and building occupancy. So these are the overall trends and I want to kind of uh, I wanted to put a, a visual on all of this so that people kind of understand what things were like leading up to the pandemic and what things have been since then. Um, and as you can see, there are some you know, negative signs, but there's also some positive signs. For example, the fact that uh, space under construction has decreased significantly and has been under uh, the 10-year average uh, for the past two years is a really good sign. Um, it means that, you know, if less is less uh, space is being constructed, you don't have to worry about negative absorption as much um, because there is a whole bunch of product out there that is becoming obsolete. 
Uh, and as we'll talk later, a lot of the, the product that's becoming obsolete is being turned, uh, is either being demolished or turned into apartments or some other type of space. Um, but as long as the construction is down, that's actually, that's at least one good fundamental. It'll help uh, recoup some of that vacancy in the long term, uh, not necessarily short term, because we have to, you know, we have to take a look at this from both the long term and the short term. But overall, as you can see, vacancy, you know, it was it was flatlined, ticking, uh, ticking up slightly uh, right before the pandemic. But since 2020, um, it really has increased significantly um, to even numbers that are higher than what we saw in 2007 and 2008 so far, uh, which is, you know, has a lot of owners uh, really worried, um, you know, as a you know, somebody who's who's looking to see this as a, a cash flowing asset. Um, you know, high vacancy rate and a, a stalled um, asking rent, but on a real basis, a decreasing a, uh, asking rent uh, on, on a per square foot basis is really like the worst of all scenarios for you as an owner. So there, there definitely are some negative signs. We're not going to try to sugarcoat that completely, um, but you know, there, there are multiple factors here. So overall, what this has resulted in, uh, as this has resulted in uh, negative absorption uh, for the past few years, um, which, you know, there is still a little bit of construction left, but this is where, you know, this sector right here is really, really where we need to figure out uh, what to do with all the space um, as owners, as buyers, um, as us working as, as real estate professionals who advise owners on what to do. That's, that's what we're focused on. Um, and on the national level. So digging down into the, the regional level, and, and we put four different regions up here, um, and I wanted to have this as a basis so you understood what we mean when we say West versus Midwest, South and Northeast, because everybody has a slightly different uh, definition. Um, we see similar tales, um, but not the same thing. Um, so as you can tell uh, throughout the US has been, you know, drastically increasing negative absorption quarter after quarter, uh, starting in, you know, the beginning of 2022, you had, you know, negative absorption in the 2 million uh, uh, square foot range. And now we're in the 25 million square foot range. And it's been increasing uh, consistently over each quarter since then. So really a lot of space that is being underutilized, a lot of buildings that are, that just have a ton of vacancy um, that, that, that needs to be filled. Um, Northeast, has been consistent with throughout that that phase. Um, they really have, uh, you know, them and the, the Midwest um, and the South really have all followed the same uh, course. But really, a lot of where we're seeing uh, in kind of a drastic measures on this is in the far West. So California, LA, San Francisco, San Jose, uh, Seattle, Portland, those markets are really where we're seeing a drastic increase compared to the other markets. Um, that is really, you know, cause for alarm for for some that are that are, um, you know, assets are maybe focused in that area. Vacancy standpoint, um, each region has followed similar trends. Uh, some are a little bit more exacerbated uh, than others, such as Midwest, uh, which has increased uh, nearly 400 basis points um, in vacancy since uh, the second quarter of 2022, which for a single year is is really something we haven't seen before, um, except for maybe a couple of times throughout 20, uh, to, uh, 2008, 2009 um, for a single year. And so 
but overall, uh, a lot of the different uh, regions are doing uh, poorly uh, when it comes to vacancy um, with, you know, just continued increases. Uh, and we expect that this increase um, will likely continue um, for at least the next two quarters. Um, but there are really two schools of thought when it comes to going forward uh, in, in a lot of our predictions. And uh, so it, it could either be, right, because no, nobody really knows the answers going long term, but we provide really two scenarios that are going to be most likely, which is either the office market is about at or about to hit the bottom uh, when it comes to the worst of the market. Um, and from there, it'll stagnate for a couple of quarters before starting to recover uh, a lot of that rental growth, uh, the vacancy, um, or um, a, you know, and that's what we could call our baseline scenario uh, when it comes when, when Cushman and Wakefield forecasting, um, or, you know, there is kind of a slightly worse scenario, which we call the downside scenario, which is that the really we're getting close to the bottom, but as a market, we're not going to bottom out when it comes to rental growth and vacancy until we get closer to uh, halfway through 2024. Um, and that's, and those are really the two most likely scenarios. There are obviously there, there's more, um, you know, uh, there's broader uh, forecasting that we have that predicts, you know, worse or better scenarios. But that's our baseline and slight downside uh, forecasting that we consider to be the most uh, common. And so now that we're done with the office, I think it would make sense to, to open it up to a couple of questions uh, from our panel. Yeah, Michael, I have a follow up. Uh, you know, as your numbers reflect the vacancy and some you mentioned a little bit, the impact of work from home, return to work. But I, if I'm correct, I think your vacancy numbers reflect leases that aren't paying any rent. Um, I don't know if they take into account spaces that are paying but dark or spaces where 50% of the office is vacant uh, due to work from home, but they're still paying their rent. And I think when we went into COVID, there's about a seven year average life for the office market lease out there. I mean, potentially you've got another five to six, well, 10, 10 to 12 years left of leases that come due and renegotiate as they come due. Uh, lessening their space. How do you see that work from home uh, playing out in the coming future years uh, as these leases come due? That's a great question. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, we saw there there are companies that track essentially what's called a key card access into buildings. And that's a better indication of what it, uh, you know, what the actual physical occupancy is of those buildings versus just, you know, what space is being leased and occupied by the the tenant. Um, and it drops down to something like 20 to 25 percent um, almost immediately in, in March and April of 2020. Um, and it's been very, very slow uh, to get back to normal. Uh, and right now, it, it really depends on the market. Um, West Coast markets, uh, as, as I pointed out earlier, are doing a little bit worse. And they're, you know, if you take a look at San Francisco, you take a look at L.A., Portland, Seattle, um, they're hovering in that 40 to 45 percent range of, of actual occupancy um, of, of actual, you know, employees coming back into the office compared to February 2020 numbers. Some of the best markets we're seeing, Austin, Houston, uh, Miami, 
even those are topping out at around 60%. Um, and they are anywhere in the 55 to 60% range in terms of actual occupancy. Numbers are very, very slow to return. The, the, you know, there was kind of an initial movement um, in 2021. 2022 is where we kind of saw a little bit of a peak. And 2023 has been only slight improvements since 2022. So, and we're talking by slight, meaning two to three percent increase. If it keeps at that rate, you know, and that's worst case scenario. If it keeps at that rate, you know, you won't see occupancy get close back to 100 percent for you know decades. But we don't see that happening. We see that um, very rapidly because of some of the downturn for some of the the larger companies, some of the tech companies. People, uh, you know, a lot of companies and groups are, are, are forcing workers to come back. We just heard that recently from Amazon, Goldman Sachs, and a lot of tech companies as well, um, that they're really pushing to have their workers come back in the office. Now that we're so far off um, or, or so far removed from the beginning of the pandemic and from the first couple of waves of the disease uh, and the lockdowns, I think you're really going to see 2024 as a time when uh employers are really going to push for that. And whether there's a slight recession or a heavy recession that's going to cause um, a lot of a lot more layoffs than we've already seen, um, that could just help with that as workers will start to lose a little bit of their advantage in the negotiations for their work, their place of work. Um, and I think that already you've seen from a lot of employers, which is why you're seeing a lot of them push people back into the office, is they're not seeing the kind of product productivity that they, they saw um, three or four years ago. And it's very evident. And so, you know, long term, how does that how does that happen? How does that work out? Um, I don't you know have a crystal ball for you, but I think there is definitely pushback for it. And I don't think the you know, 40 in the worst market, 60 in the best markets right now is where we're going to see settling. It, it, you know, it might be closer to that 80 to 90 percent range or or maybe just, you know, the 80 to 70 percent range um, long term. But it, is, it still leaves a huge gap. You're right. All right. Thank you. Uh, so, Michael, I was looking at the numbers you had. You said you show a negative 24 million square feet of net absorption. But yeah, we've got 71 million square feet under construction. What is under construction when the markets are kind of doom and gloom for a lot of the larger office projects? And then part two of that is this more confined to smaller projects or owner occupied or what are we seeing? Yeah, uh, great question. And I think that it really, you know, we're looking at things from a national level, uh, but really ultimately real estate is about an asset per asset um, look and, and no asset is going to be exactly the same, no matter what market it is. Um, and that's really kind of speaks to those projects, which are primarily build a suit for larger you know, corporations that need a specific footprint. Um, you're seeing, you know, class A within class A markets, uh, still retained a lot of its value compared to the lower class B, class C buildings. And that's where, you know, you're going to see more of that construction, um, is if you have high demand in a very specific sub market, um, of a city or of a, a metropolitan area, that's where, you know, 90 to 95% of all that construction is taking place. 
Um, so again, if you have a build a suit where you have a, a tenant that you know really needs this specific building built for them that doesn't exist yet, that's where you see that. Um, so let's move on to retail. Um, and this is one that at the very beginning of the pandemic uh, was thought to be kind of a goner. Um, the pandemic really kind of, you know, retail was not doing well leading up to 2018, 2019. Um, it was, it was, you know, it appeared to be overbuilt and it appeared that the e-commerce was going to come forward and, and, and kind of eat its lunch. Um, but, you know, Overall, while you saw a little initial um, kind of disruption in the market, the fundamentals are significantly better than office. Um, and the question is going forward is, you know, how much did the pandemic push people to um, get more into experiential um, retail and want to get back to, um, you know, interacting with other people again, uh, where buying you know merchandise online you can't do that um I, I think that we're seeing a little bit of a kickback from that and so there there may be long term i think there's still going to be some fluctuations related to that um but you know it's not a doom and gloom scenario there's no doom loop that's kind of projected for national retail at this point um but you know as you can see the net absorption really sank in 2022 and it really recovered since then um, vacancy has been decreasing steadily but slowly, uh, while the rental rates per square foot have been increasing. So standard fundamentals that you would see, it doesn't appear that the recession has really been affecting this, this asset class too much. Um, but again, I think you still have to factor in, at first everybody was afraid to go out, afraid to go to restaurants, they were afraid to, to, to go to malls, um, they were afraid to buy things in person. Uh, and everything went online drastically. But a lot of that online sales has started to slow down and kind of decrease a little bit um, over the past year to year and a half. Um, and that has really kind of provided some decent fundamentals nationally uh, for retail. Um, you also had at the very uh, end of 2019, a dramatic drop in construction, um, which really allowed uh, a lot of the space to be absorbed um, and all of that kind of led to retail had, had really placed itself uh, in a perfect situation uh, to be able to meet uh, a lot of the, the, the problems that the pandemic was going to uh, present to some of the other asset classes. Um, but we track this on, uh, you know, across different types of, uh, what, you know, what we call malls, right? You have your, your power centers, your, your neighborhood and community centers, your strip centers, um, your, your, your major malls, major malls are still not, you know, doing great. Uh, and they probably have the, the, you know, the most exposure, there's a lot of vacancy there, but most owners have figured out a way to use those. And because regional malls tend to, to be very far and few in between, uh, you know, you have, you know, one per city or one per town, um, you're not talking about multiple assets that people are having to figure out a solution for um, to reuse. And so a lot of them have been turned into office a lot of uh, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, a lot of them now since then have been turned into data centers, into industrial um, and you know, or have been changed into more modern forms of retail. Uh, outdoor malls are, are very popular these days. So there's a lot of fundamentals that are keeping retail strong. Um, you know, the, the bump that really kind of pushed it down at the beginning of the pandemic, um, in terms of the, the increased vacancy that decreased, 
uh, absorption uh, that is now doing strong, you know, they, there could be a reversal to that, right? It, it's kind of like if you if you drop a, you know, if you create if you're creating waves, there's always going to be peaks and troughs, and you know, who you know, it could be that we're in a peak right now uh, based off of that. But so far, there's nothing uh, in the fundamentals that show any sort of disruption there. Recession obviously will have an effect on uh, consumption um, from from shoppers, and that would have an overall effect on the retail market. But at least going into that, retail is not currently overbuilt. Um, it, going back to the last slide, you know, as construction continues to decrease, so there's really not a bubble of construction that we're seeing may interact with a decrease in shopping or decreasing in, in, in consumption that would normally come with a recession. So overall, retail is doing fairly well right now. I guess I'd have a question on that um, because I'm looking at a couple of different markets here. I've told you we're in South Dakota and that would be more of your power regional in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and that mall appears to be doing fine. But when I go up into the Twin City metro market, I'm seeing a lot of the big box stores that are empty, and it looks to me like it's going to take a decade to fill some of those box stores. I mean, I've got malls that are almost ghost towns. So yeah. what are alternative uses that they're going to use for these properties in these major markets that I'm seeing? So it really depends on the market, um, but kind of what I just said when it comes to uh, the alternative uses, you know, there, there's self-storage, there's data center, there's industrial. Those are three markets that are that are very strong right now. Um, and, you know, it really, when it comes to individual assets, that's one of those things where we have to understand that individual asset and understand the, the, the local market or, that's going to affect that. So it could be that it's going to be adaptively reused for one of those, or it could just be that the specific demographics um, for that area are decreasing. You have a decrease in population, a decrease in um, median income or a stagnation of median income. Um, and it could just be that that specific location is a bad location for retail, um, which is what you're going to see, you know, with a lot of assets. And, and, and I would just encourage anybody who, if you're looking at a specific asset, you know, part of what our team does is we, you know, we, are, are the are partially the strategic advisory services team. So we help owners, you know, understand what to do with their assets based off of all these factors. We put together long, extensive, uh, highest and best use studies to determine these. Um, every asset is different. So speaking to that specific asset, I don't know, but there may be a lot of different options um, to figure out what it is the best and highest uh, use for that product. And it may not be retail. It may not be an adaptive reuse to an outdoor mall. It may be, which I'm, you know, guessing if it's if it's Twin Cities, an outdoor mall probably doesn't, uh, probably isn't as great in that market as it would be, let's say, a southern market, um, because you know, six months out of the year, people don't, you know, want to be outdoors. Um, but it could be industrial. It, it really all depends on the fundamentals of that asset. If it has, um, if it's close to a um, if it's close to an on-ramp, off-ramp for a major artery, um, you know, freeway, then that's, you know, that could have industrial potential. So I would say when it comes to individual assets, you know, definitely contact me afterwards, look into those specific ones. But um, there are a lot of different options out there for product types uh, that are currently in construction booms, like the ones I mentioned. 
Mark and Jack, do you have any additional thoughts or questions? Uh, Mark, you're on, you're mute. I would just concur. That's kind of what we're seeing across our footprint. Retail is generally pretty strong, particularly the strip centers. We are seeing weakness in indoor malls and the, as Jack mentioned, big boxes to some extent, but generally retail is good. Jack? No, I would agree that with what market said, we're not seeing that, but obviously with some bankruptcies and Bed Bath Beyond, some of these other big boxes, Dick's Sporting Goods has pulled out of a couple of locations. There are some big boxes that are sitting empty in a couple of malls that I'm seeing have high vacancy rates and they're in what I would think are better areas of towns of the Twin Cities, whether yeah. it's in Edina or down into Eden Prairie. So, Well, and part of the problem that we're seeing with a lot of those, and, and we're working with a couple of, of theaters um, that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Regal Cinemas recently declared bankruptcy as well. Uh, we're dealing with a couple of, you know, big box um, uh movie theaters that you can't really reuse for anything else. Um, but what's nice about those is that they've, you know, they've come, uh, they've been built with, you know, 10 or 11 to one uh, parking ratios. Um, so there's a, there's a ton of parking there and they, they're sometimes built in good places, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're built in the middle of industrial parks. Those ones, you know, if they're in the middle of industrial park, it's an easy conversion to industrial. Um, but right now, what we're seeing from a lot of land uh, developers and speculators is they can't get financing. Um, and that may be a little bit of an issue when it comes to a lot of these big box vacancies is that normally you might have a developer, uh, a land speculator kind of gobble those up and, and you know, figure out something new with them. Um, but if they're not cash heavy, if they don't have a lot of dry powder sitting around, um, they're, you know, they're not going to be able to get financing uh, just to hold this land. Um, and so I think that's also another part of the problem is trying to resell those assets. Um, it can be a little bit tricky with the, with the buyer's market. Um, so then that leads us to multifamily. Um, and this one, you know, has, it, it went through a historic boom. Um, really 2010 uh, to 2022, uh, it was probably one of the longest periods in time in which multifamily was doing extremely well. Um, but as you can see, you know, vacancies are starting to move up. Uh, we can, you know, net absorption uh, is increasing, uh, which is good. Um, and rents are increasing, which is good. But again, a lot of this is not factoring in inflation, which overall for roughly the past year and a half since the middle of 2021, uh, sorry, to, since the end of 2021, on a real terms basis, uh, multifamily rents have actually been decreasing. Uh, and a lot of people aren't speaking about that or, or talking about that, but that's that's a really very real thing to understand because th this is one of the primary factors in inflation. Um, and so if you're not factoring that, <laughs> If you're not factoring that in, you know, as, as people's as people's food and gas it completely you know, continues to increase, it may just look like, oh yeah, multifamily is continu continuing to do really, really well. But as we'll get into construction pricing later, um, all of this comes at a huge cost to the multifamily owners because their their expense ratios are really are, are really uh, increasing uh, with all of these properties as well. So the the net income when it comes to that is really not helping out. Um, but, 
you know, good side is construction is starting to decrease and it has been decreasing over the past year. Um, and people are continuing to be employed. So this is one of the one of the fears going into the recession is that you're going to have increased unemployment. Um, but leading up to this, you know, I would argue that a, in an increased or decreased labor uh, participation force uh, actually weighs on multifamily more than unemployment um, because it, you know, it, you no longer have people that have given up or, or kind of living off of whatever funds that they, they have lying around. Now people are actually actively looking for jobs. So that might be a good sign um, that that uh, unemployment has increased slightly, but purely because from, you know, labor force participation is continuing to increase. Um, and, but that's a big factor when it comes to the multifamily side, right? Uh, do people have jobs? Um, and then can people afford homes, which is the other big factor, which is right now, nobody can afford homes. So while pricing on multifamily is starting to come down a little bit, um, it is being suppressed a little bit because you still continue to have more people staying in the rental market um, that normally, you know, 2009 to 2021, or really the beginning of 2022, was really the cheapest time in American history to ever purchase a home. And a lot of the time people don't realize that because they, they saw pricing for homes continuously going up. But if you were to factor it in on a monthly mortgage rate, the, the, the average somebody was spending per month on their home was lower than in any other time in history, at least as far back as we have records. Um, and, and that's something important to understand. And so that you know the new normal um, that is suppressing people from coming into the rental market, maybe that's going to be here for a little bit longer than we think, right? Maybe the multifamily market, you know, where vacancy has been increasing for the past year and a half, asking rents have kind of been wobbling for the past year and a half um, on a nominal basis, but then have actually been decreasing on a real basis for the past year and a half. Um, maybe that is going to continue a little bit, uh, but maybe it's going to be suppressed. Uh, from people staying in in, in the rental market, um, and so you have a couple of different you know competing factors there. One good factor, as I mentioned earlier, is 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 the construction slowing down. Um, is it slowing down fast enough? I don't know uh, because there definitely was a bubble. Uh, you know, from 2022 to 20 the beginning of 23, uh, we saw more um, space under construction uh, than we had, uh, you know, really since uh, 2007. Um, and that's and that's a big factor um, because you're dramatically increasing the supply of space there. Um, and so we'll see. I mean, going forward, again, not really sure how this is going to affect, um, you know, how this is going to be affected by the recession. You know, you know, we have a couple of factors, but overall, this is this is fairly consistent uh, for most of the markets. The South, uh, in particular, you'll notice here is kind of experienced a little bit higher, right? They're they're already in the nine percent range when it comes to vacancy overall. That primarily speaks to the construction. Um, you know, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, um, Texas has really seen, and uh, I guess uh, Tennessee as well has really seen a huge boom in construction over the past few, really for the past half decade at least, uh, and that's really something that. The market hasn't been able to catch up to yet, and if we're going into a recession, if you know we have a you know overall decreasing population uh, from a from a naturalized standpoint, 
um, how, how is that going to affect us going going forward? Well, right now it's it's really negatively affecting those vacancy rates. Um, but the South, you also notice, um, and I don't think I have the slide up here, that their their rents overall have been increasing much faster than other uh, regions. Uh, and so even though you do have that increased vacancy, you do have the, the increased rents along with it, uh, which does help kind of partner, you know, kind of counteract some of those fundamentals. Uh, one big factor that we're seeing um, is really San Francisco. And it shows on this on this chart that San Francisco is uh, really, really high uh, compared to the national average. That's that's purely it's purely on on a on a per square footage basis and and what actual numbers in terms of rent growth. San Francisco is seeing one of the biggest drops right now, um, and that's coupled with the office market. Um, that is kind of an outlier. I, I don't like to talk about specific cities too much, uh, but that one is that one is that that's one that we've noticed uh, is really kind of far out and ahead uh, in terms of negative fundamentals from the multifamily and the office sector. Um, that is kind of having a, a two two tiered storm right now. Um, and whether that has to do with, um, you know, local policies, local laws, or whether that has to do with, um, you know, other factors like they had, they had a construction boom that they hadn't had before in office. Um, there, there's a lot of different factors that can go into that. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a conversation we can specifically have with owners of assets in, in that, in that market. But overall, um, you know, it, it could be an indication that something similar would come down for other parts of the West that um, also had construction booms uh, too. So, it's a question for you. In some of these markets, are you seeing that uh, rent controls are having pressure on some of these values of these properties? And and uh, I guess part two of that, I'm seeing uh, cap rates still saying what I think are unreasonably low in. Uh, apartments anywhere five and a quarter five and three quarters is what we're seeing on that so obviously there's still a demand for that type of investment so i'll let you answer those questions i guess two, two fantastic questions and, and really points too um so even before the pandemic um a lot of cities around the east coast um will tell you that they noticed a huge increase in the number of investors coming down from New York. Um, because in 2000, I think it was 2018, New York passed a whole set of laws uh, regarding um, rent control that made it significantly more difficult for investors to be able to uh, do work in that city. And, and that really did have real effects, right? We were talking about um, issues in the multifamily sector in New York City uh, before the pandemic even happened. And, and that was almost entirely, although there were other factors too, uh, that was heavily influenced by those rent control uh, features. So, you know, going back to San Francisco, that could be, uh, that could be a reason. Um, San Francisco's had rent control for a very long time. Uh, but San Jose, which also has rent control, has not had the same issues that San Francisco has, which is which is interesting to note because those are two cities that are similar in size. San Jose is a little bit bigger than San Francisco. Uh, similar market, right? They're both very driven by the tech sector. Um, San Jose, though, has really, for the most part, uh, recovered on the multifamily side, um, with a couple, you know, a couple of exceptions um, since the beginning of the pandemic. San Francisco has not. It's really continuously 
continuing to do worse. Um, and so, you know, I, I haven't done an extensive study into the difference between those two cities, but rent control can actually be a factor. And that's actually, you know, not just in 2018, but that's why, uh, you know, really a multifamily building boom has been taking place over the Southeast uh, and the, and to the greater extent, the South for a long time is just, it's just a lot easier to build things there. Um, and in California and, uh, you know, in Colorado is starting to go in that direction. And, uh, but Washington and, and Oregon as well, if it's hard for you to build, you're not going to build there. Um, and, and you're seeing that with a lot of groups. And so they're, you know, that's what's pushing up the rents in some of those places is really less of less of the demand and more of just the lack of supply. Um, and so then the other question was related to remind me again. The cap rates. Uh, ah, we're yes. Cap rates are five and a quarter to five and three quarters when we've gotten recent appraisals in on multifamily properties. Yeah. So cap rates are, are taking a long time to kind of adjust. And I think part of the problem is that we don't really track cap rates very well. A lot of people are very secretive. Even if you go to the coast, we got you know, some of our information from CoStar, but a lot of Christian and Wakefield's research is, is going out directly to our brokers and getting that information. Um, most sources get it from these kind of, the, these, these services like CoStar, like ERD Matrix, um, and they're not really reporting as many cap rates as we would like. Um, a lot of what you see when it comes to the beginnings of the recession is a lot of people tend to hide the cap rates. And so um, what I've noticed with a lot of the deals that I've worked on on the multifamily side um, is that the market has not really adjusted to it. And um, non-traditional lenders are understanding that and not factoring in um, lower cap rates. For example, I'm working on a multifamily deal right now where the appraisers came in and they appraised it at a 5.7 cap and automatically the lender came back and said, well, we don't believe that. We're going to get a second, third opinion. Second opinion came back a little bit higher, but there is an there is a real problem right now with the way that appraisers see cap rates and what cap rates really are. On the multifamily side, um, unless it's an absolute class A product, you're in the eight to 9% cap rate, right? Or higher. Um, if it's a class A product, if it's a class A location, there are exceptions to that and it could be lower. It, it really could be. We're, we're still seeing sales, for example, in San Jose, we're still seeing sales in the fours for cap rate. Um, and it, it kind of all depends on the market fundamentals, right? Different markets are different, are driven, the cap rates in different markets are driven by different things. Um, San Jose, for example, is driven by a lot of people that have a ton of money that are just looking for an investment to stick it in, uh, betting on the, the appreciation of the asset growing their equity versus necessarily the cash flow of the asset growing their equity. Um, in Florida, you have a huge influx of money, of international money coming from countries where inflation is significantly higher than we have here. Venezuela, a lot of investors coming from there saying, you know what, as long as I have an asset that's not losing value, I'm I'm in the green. And so they're willing to pay three, 4% cap rates on class A uh, product or, or even 5% cap rates on class B product for multifamily. Um, but 
a lot of it has to do with different fundamentals. And what you will see with a lot of those obviously is that there's, there's going to be, they're going to be really, really heavy on the equity side that, you know, the debt service is going to be extremely low. Um, uh, and, you know, they, they may be get, they may be using 60, 70% equity to, to buy a, a property. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think cap rates are overly inflated right now. I think, a lot of that is just because we're not tracking it properly. Um, and I think the market is still adjusting, but you know, over the next maybe two quarters, maybe three quarters, you'll continue to see the cap rate start to, to adjust uh, to what they should be um, representing, you know, uh, the income on the property and the interest rates. And uh, we'll see what happens if, if the, you know, if the fed raises interest rates again, then we're, again, we're going to have to adjust this all down uh, or, or adjust the cap rates up and, and, uh, you know, we'll see. But yeah, I completely agreed with you. There, there's, there's usually a lag, um, in, in a lot of these downturns, uh, when it comes to the different, um, uh, the different pieces of the, of the puzzle talking to each other. So if there are no follow-up questions on multifamily, we can move on to the next property type. Right. Um, and so then industrial, this is, you know, this is one of those sectors that has been been booming for a while. Um, it really took a huge hit uh, during the last, during the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Um, but since then has really, it, it's been, you know, completely energized. And, you know, to, to kind of speak to what we, we mentioned in retail earlier, it's really been, um, you know, energize especially because of the, the the boom in in online sales. Um, now, does that continue on as as online sales are starting to uh, to you know come back down or plateau a little bit uh, as a percentage of all retail sales? Uh, possibly, uh, but the the fundamentals are just so strong from from a from a rental basis that you know it, it's really kind of hard to see. It's really hard to kind of see any negatives in this atmosphere. Now, granted, there's a there's a lot of construction going on. Uh, it has slowed down a little bit, but overall, you know, year over year, we just continue to see uh, it all being absorbed. Um, and you know, so far, while vacancies have increased a little bit um, over the past couple of quarters, um, rents continue to increase along with that. So we really don't see that right now as a strong issue, um, you know, for example, if the 95 corridor from, from DC to Philadelphia and really to a greater extent all the way up to Boston, um, good, you know, good luck trying to find, if you're, if you're a tenant, good luck trying to find space to lease. Um, it's just, it's just so hard to find space. And with a lot of this industrial product, space can also be pretty specific to the user. So, a lot of this space that, that is being created or constructed and put into the market um, is specific to those tenants. Um, and so that's why, you know, even though there might be a lot uh, in the pipeline, it's already leased up, uh, it's pre-leased. And so it's, it's not gonna affect, um, it's not gonna negatively affect the absorption. Um, overall, you, know, you can just see the, the leasing activity, just it continued to climb. Um, you know, 2022 is a, is a little bit less than 2021, but overall, we're, we're, you know, we, we still feel like, you know, based off of the current numbers, we're going to hit, you know, above 2019, uh, figures and, uh, for, for this year. And, um, you know, while there might be a slight dip, um, or a slight pause in the increase in rental rates on a real basis, uh, we think they're going to continue to increase, 
correct uh, just based off of all the fundamentals. Um, and, and you can kind of see this across board with, with most markets, right? There are a couple of markets, uh, you know, Providence, Rhode Island, and in, in Florida, Naples, which, which may be outliers here, but most people are seeing very positive, solid um, uh, growth uh, across the market. Um, and, in, you know, when, the, when it comes to these vacancy numbers, you know, they're, it's, it's absolutely solid that they're all, you know, you know, three or four and below it's, it's, you know, there's really nothing much bad. You can, nothing very bad about this, uh, this, uh, market that you can say right now. Um, if it's a deep recession, um, some of the earlier factors we've seen on is that some of the production has slowed down significantly, um, at least within the past month, a month and a half, um, that, that could have some sort of a dent on it, but, at most, you know, if we're let's say we're going to go into a deep recession here, I would say at most there's going to be a slight correction in in industrial, uh, but nothing long term, nothing fundamental that's really going to decrease the the long term value of these this product. And um, as you can see, you know, most investors, you know, say the same thing. Uh, I don't have the cap rates up here, but again, we're still looking at cap rates, low fives. Um, to high fives, depending on how, you know, how good the product is. Um, but you're, you know, in, in, if it's a class A fully leased uh, new build product, you, you can still see in the fours and in, in, um, in terms of cap rates. So it's, it's still fundamentals are very strong for this. And, um, you know, it doesn't seem that there's any sort of decrease in demand from tenants. Jack and Mark, do you have any follow-up questions or any thoughts to add? I guess not so much on industrial, but just uh, real estate, move more questions in general on the real estate market. You know, we're continuing to see the costs increase, you know, of construction, but not just the basic construction costs. It's the property taxes. Of course, the interests have gone up and then speak to insurance. And again, on with insurance, not just a new construction, but to existing properties, we're seeing insurers pull completely out of markets. We're seeing mm -hmm. commercial insurance uh, premiums go up 30 to 50% year over year in some cases. How is that impacting the construction market and the resale market? Yeah, it's, it's all continued to slow the market. We actually had somebody recently that was turned down. Uh, for a loan on a multifamily property um, in Baltimore, where normally we wouldn't have any sort of issue. It was, you know, it was a decent neighborhood. Normally, we wouldn't have any issues with this. Um, but a lender just flat out told them that they weren't going to lend uh, to that market. Um, now, granted, that's that's you know Baltimore, and not everybody's willing to to lend into Baltimore. But even all the lenders that we were getting quotes from from a lot of these properties. Um, for all of our buyers, really, um, yeah, prices continues to increase. And as you can see in the National Construction Index here, which is you know what, what I wanted to go into next, so this is a great segue, um, you do continue to see an increase in uh, construction prices across the board. 2021 was a huge year for that. We saw you know dramatic increases, 200, 300% for certain types of product. Um, but at least when it comes to some of the main factors, uh, lumber, iron, and steel, a lot of that pricing is starting to come down on the construction side. Um, but that being said, everything else has still been going up a little bit. So while I would say overall construction pricing has come down slightly from its peak, um, 
you do have a lot of other factors in there like insurance costs that are that are affecting a lot of these deals uh, and making some transactions. I mean, they're they're a piece of the puzzle that, you know, from an underwriting standpoint, owners are looking at. I would say it doesn't it doesn't heavily affect it. You know, it, it might affect the deal, you know, 10 basis points or so or maybe 20 basis points at most. Um, but for the most for the on, on a cap rate. But on, on the most, for the most part, um, you know, it, it's really kind of just putting a damper on the construction side and the redevelopment side than it is on, you know, value add opportunities that would normally be that owners would normally be looking at. Um, I would say that most of the damper on um, construction came really in 2021 and in, in 2022. And now it's, you know, people are starting to adjust to that pricing so that it doesn't have as much effect on uh, um, from what it did before. Um, yeah. I, I guess I'd follow up too then, whether it's related to construction or financing sales of existing property, what are you seeing from the money center banks, the really large regionals? Are they saying no to CRE loans in general? Are there specific categories they're saying no to or are they saying yes to? A lot of times their appetite drives the market for everyone down the chain. Yeah, uh, definitely no to land. Land and, and new build construction, uh, there's been a huge decrease on that side uh, from from them. Um, on the multifamily side, uh, there's been a, a real cinching of the belt. Um, and on the office side, Again, we've definitely seen uh, people being declined uh, for for loans on that side. You know, it, I would say office and land are definitely the the most significant affected by that. Um, and then uh, multifamily would be kind of like a, you know, a, a not a distant third, but you know, fairly not too close behind. Um, Industrial retail not really heavily affected just yet. Re retail a little bit. Uh, Industrial is fairly good. Uh, hotel is also a huge problem right now, and, and getting a loan uh, on on hospitality is is a huge problem uh, for a lot of owners. Uh, but yeah, I would say those those three the hotel, office, and land are are where we're actually seeing a lot of um, lenders just not even going right now. Um, so. Yeah, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely a problem for those those industries. Given the complexity of the landscape, it demands a differentiated approach and a conservative underwriting and a granular understanding of the portfolio and local market dynamics. So the di diagnosis of issues are important, but the focus is really on the town. What are your thoughts and what are some of the changes you have implemented on the talent side? on the credit team across the board in terms of expertise. Um, maybe I'll start off with um, Jack. Okay. Well, from our standpoint, we haven't had much of a change in our, what I call our talent pool. Um, obviously we've had some replacements of people as we reached retirement, et cetera, but we've kept our underwriting standards pretty similar for the last 20 years. So we haven't changed our underwriting standards. We go through the ups and downs and, and we seem to survive those just fine. Um, so I can't say that right now I'm suffering from a talent shortage. However, I've got some people reaching uh, retirement age. You notice the color of my hair. And uh, we've got a lot of people here that are in a similar situation. And we're working to bring that younger talent pool up. 
and get them trained in, which goes back to my point, and I think maybe hopefully Mark would echo this, as we like the work in office because how do you share your knowledge with the younger staff if they're not there side by side, seeing what you do on a day in, day out basis. So from our standpoint, it's, it's, it's grooming our people that we have internally right now and showing them what we have learned in the past. We've survived through the, the last you know four recessions without major issues. So we intend to continue to do that, just passing on that knowledge. Great, thank you. Mark, would you like to add to that comments? Yeah, I'll echo that. First, uh, Jack's point, I mean, we obviously work in the office. I think I worked remotely for one week at the start of COVID, and then that was the end of that. Uh, so we're big believers in being in the office. We think it's uh, required to get productivity. Uh, and as far as the talent pool, again, we haven't, like Jack, haven't made many changes here either. I mean, there is some talent out there floating around from institutions that have kind of said, well, we're not lending in the CRE market anymore. But I think what you'll find with most banks out there, well, there's kind of three areas of banks out there. There's the banks that have a fairly good portfolio of either ag production or CNI lending that have variable rate loans. They're fat and happy. Their margin's never been better in 10 years. They're content to do what they're doing. They're not looking to expand. And the banks that are in the CNR, CRE world are generally either running up against liquidity constraints uh, because of their funding sources and their longer term board, bond portfolio, they can't liquidate. So they're having to borrow their funds. It makes it harder to lend or they've run up against the CRE 300% liquidity or 300% concentration requirement. So many of those banks already have a concentration in CRE. So they're not really looking to expand their talent pool right now either to grow into that market. So are you able to capitalize on the opportunity to tap some of the top notch talents from your larger counterparts? Um, we're kind of in that, you know, we've got a great team. We don't, uh, we're not trying to expand our CRE portfolio greatly right now. So we're kind of in that uh, group of banks that's probably not interested in a big expansion right now. Great. Thank you. Michael, do you have anything to add from our side of things? No, I mean, I, I think that if, uh, you know, anybody who's watching this uh, has any questions about the real estate market or, or um, you know, what are different options for them as a bank, uh, you know, for different assets and, and uh, plans for the future. I, I'd love for them to reach out to us. And uh, if you could just provide our information um, uh, when you when you release this, uh, that'd be great. Great. So this brings us to the end of the session. I want to thank Michael for your valuable insights. And thank you, Jack and Mark, for your participation and contributions in this webinar. Our audience would definitely, you know, take away some valuable insights from this uh, recording. Greatly appreciate it, uh, Jack, Mark, and Michael.